All right. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the year-end review, New York and New Jersey civil litigation. Uh, this is our first year-end review, so, uh, you know, follow-up to the year. And as always, this is a live question and answer. Sorry, we got stuck on the title slide for a moment there. Uh, so submit your questions in that little box, and we'll get to them at the end if there are any. So just wanted to touch briefly on what happened over the past year, what we dove into, and where we're going next year. Uh, we covered a wide range of topics. Like I mentioned, this was the inaugural year for the major Monday's webinar. Um, we touched on the no-fault laws of both states, well, more than touched on, got, got our hands really dirty on those. Uh, subrogation issues uh, just skirted the surface. There's going to be more of that in 2021. Civil litigation basics, uh, motion practice, discovery devices. Uh, but we got a totally different agenda for 2021, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and we'll talk about that later. <clears throat> so we started off, we kicked off our year in 2020 with uh, New York's no-fault law and loss transfer. We talked about where the 50K carve-out comes from, any uh, carrier dealing with subrogation issues in New York. Uh, they know you just miss out on that first 50,000 in motor vehicle accidents uh, in recovering from a third-party action. Well, uh, we talked about how to get around that, and getting around it includes both total exceptions to the 50K carve-out uh, and things that are excluded from the carve-out. So uh, we talked about, was it use or operation in the state of New York? Again, if the accident happened outside the state of New York, uh, there's no 50K carve-out. Uh, was it between covered persons? Uh, was it an uninsured driver on the other end? Um, were benefits paid in lieu of first-party benefits? So remember, indemnity over 2K per month uh, or paid more than three years after the date of loss uh, is not in lieu of first-party benefits, and we have Section 29 rights on that money. Um, we talked about the process for intercompany loss transfer, how we get our 50K back and when the cases qualify. Um, we also went over maximizing recovery from across the civil action. Again, this is the third-party case. Uh, and then the loss transfer claim and the harmony with Section 29, uh, how to make sure we're recovering uh, in both kitties, so to speak. Uh, and we also took a look at loss transfer investigation and litigation. Uh, in other words, how to identify it from the outset and how to get it started. What happens if they deny your claim? Arbitration and arbitration forums, the petition, everything. So uh, New Jersey's version of no fault, we have uh, the dirty word that is the verbal threshold. Um, we talked about where that came from, uh, the Automobile Insurance Cost Reduction Act or ACRA, uh, and when this becomes an issue, and this is when um, the actual petitioner themselves, their policy, uh, they elect for the limitation on lawsuit option in their policy, uh, we talked about the different parties that are covered. You know, if you're a passenger in someone's car, someone's a passenger in your car, um, you cannot sue under the verbal threshold uh, if it applies, unless you have the no limitation on lawsuit option. You cannot sue unless you have one of the six qualifying injuries, uh, death, dismemberment, loss of fetus, displaced fracture, significant uh, disfigurement and scarring, uh, et cetera. Um, we also, went into quite possibly my favorite topic of the year, a huge development with regard to Section 40 subrogation that overlaps with the verbal threshold here. There's this really fascinating evolution of the law across the cases. Uh, it starts with the very unfriendly to carriers uh, Continental Insurance Co. versus McClelland back in 1996. And then slowly in the 2000s, we start to get closer and closer to the golden ticket 
uh, you know, eventually we have uh, Talmadge versus Byrne and Lambert versus Travelers Indemnity Co. You know, finding that the carrier is entitled to Section 40 reimbursement on medical, uh, even though workers' comp is primary to no fault. Um, but it culminates in New Jersey Transit Corp uh, as subrogate of Mercogliano versus Sanchez. Uh, that was an appellate division decision in 2018, but hooray, it was affirmed by the Supreme Court uh, on May 12th, 2020. So it's as good as good gets in, uh, in the state of New Jersey and basically says the carrier is not subject to the verbal threshold when subrogating. Um, so even if the petitioner's own claim would be barred. So this is the one situation I've seen in subrogation where you're not stepping into the shoes, you literally have a greater right than the petitioner themselves does. So this was a huge development, big win for carriers. Um, we're already, we filed several cases already just over here at Lois Law, uh, getting around that. Petitioner doesn't bring their own suit because of soft tissue injuries, no problem, we can get the money back. Consent and cram down motions in New York. Uh, later on in 2021, we're gonna be talking about uh, a proper consent letter and where we go with this, with the Burns rights and the Kelly and all of that stuff. Um, but we dove uh, deeper into the idea of cram down motions, the consent requirement under section 29.5, uh, the claimant's obligation to get our consent and their burden of proof that they got it. That was from Hesert versus Ron Allen Trucking. Um, we figured out that uh, proper consent, whether it was obtained by the claimant, is a factual determination for the board from the matter of Amasio case. Uh, and we also saw just how powerful this is. Consent requirement is quote unquote inviolable. Uh, it applies in denied cases. It applies in no fault cases where there's no reimbursement coming to the carrier. It applies with a settlement for the full policy limit. So they literally could not have done any better. Uh, in all of those situations, they still need our consent. Uh, we also dove into the importance of a good consent agreement. Our old friends, Matter of Stenson, Williams versus Lloyd Gunther, and Matter of Terranova. Um, there's also specific requirements for a cram down motion under Section 29.5, uh, and those are laid out. There's an actual petition that uh, involves a physician certification and uh, certain proofs submitted by the the, the attorney, uh, and we've seen that some of these uh, motions just get tossed out for not adhering to the 29.5 requirements. Um, this is either or, there's no requirement to seek our consent uh, before filing that motion. So it's a route they can just choose to go from the outset. Um, but we also talked about two Supreme Court cases from 2018, uh, Batista versus Dong Zhu Wu and Estevez versus Public Defender Trust. Uh, these were pretty interesting in that they summarized uh, some of the law behind these cram down motions in 29.5. Um, but what's, real, what's really sort of great about them is they contain language uh, about how the court is powerless to uh, set our reimbursement anything other than the cost of litigation rate. So all of this hullabaloo about we're going to quash your lien and, you know, we're going to file in our motion, you know, to have the carrier not get any reimbursement. Uh, it's all just smoke and mirrors. It's all just bluster. The court is without power to do anything but give us what we're entitled to under the law. Uh, and by the way, a cram down motion doesn't extinguish our rights. We still have future rights going forward. <clears throat> one, of, uh, one of my sleeper picks for my favorite topics of 2020, ethical duties when representing the sub regard. This was an interesting one. Um, we talked about the strange interaction between the carrier as subrogate and the claimant as sub regard. And specifically when I talk about this uh, strange interaction, uh, we're looking at what kind of rights does the injured worker have 
once you start prosecuting this case? And how do you start prosecuting the case? And um, when is there a possible inherent conflict of interest? Uh, so we went across a couple cases uh, from New Jersey pertaining to Section 40F, uh, El Halu versus Lipinski Outdoor Services. That's an unreported appellate division decision from 2015. And man, does it drive me crazy that it's unreported uh, or unpublished. It uh, it's, provides a ton of clarification. But essentially, the Section 40F, unlike in New York, it's not really an assignment of the right uh, of the cause of action to the carrier. Um, but it is similar in that once the carrier gets the ball rolling, uh, the petitioner's out of it. Uh, they, they don't have any right to participate in the litigation or the settlement. Now, where this becomes an issue in both jurisdictions is while they don't really have a right, sometimes we kind of need them. Uh, the defendants that we're suing um, have a right to depose the person. So we need their cooperation for a case they didn't even ever want to file. Uh, we looked in Section 29.2 uh, about the absolute assignment of uh, rights under Section 29.2. Uh, that was from that uh, Skakandi versus State case. Uh, and this is just consistently upheld by the New York courts over the years. Just uh, this assignment, if you do the proper notice, the certified mail, 30 days in advance, one year after the date of loss, or six months after the warning of comp, that case is yours. Full assignment of the right of the cause of action. <clears throat> and finally, uh, we talked about the sufficient of no sufficiency of those 40F and 29.2 notices. Um, and just to what extent uh, the worker gets to be involved in the settlement, um, they don't. We get to affect that without their consent. Uh, and the possibility of an, an inherent conflict of interest where you might be representing the employer as defense counsel in the worker's comp claim, uh, but then you're being asked to sue uh, the third party and uh, sue the third party defendant who might implead the employer and then all of a sudden, um, you know, under an intentional wrong or something to that effect, uh, then all of a sudden you're simultaneously trying to get back your maximum reimbursement while limiting your exposure in the comp claim. Same thing where uh, in the comp claim, if you really successfully defend it and prove that this guy doesn't have permanent injuries, well, guess what? For your civil action, this guy doesn't have permanent injuries. Uh, so there's a really uh, interesting sort of interplay between the two of them. And we just went over the ways defense counsel can maximize efforts across both claims and when it's probably better to bow out. <clears throat> the basics of civil litigation in New York. Uh, this one was relatively comprehensive and um, pretty intensive. Uh, we talked about the various statutes of limitations. Uh, most pertinent to us is the three years for personal injury. Um, <clears throat> we went over Section 29, uh, General Municipal Law 50E, and the Court of Claims Act. Uh, there is a specific webinar on suits against public entities for subrogation purposes uh, coming up in 2021, which I'm really excited about. Uh, but we saw that uh, there's this requirement to still adhere uh, to the notice of claim within 90 days uh, for both municipalities and for court of claims cases. Uh, but while the claimant filing that may perfect our right, our filing doesn't perfect the claimant's right in New York. Uh, we looked at the various New York case dockets, uh, e-filing, the filing fees. Uh, they've all mo essentially moved to e-filing at this point. Uh, the CPLR, New York Civil Practice Law and Rules, and the concept of jurisdiction, uh, the 25K limit for the lower courts. Uh, the CPLR 3211 motion to dismiss. 
the process for discovery uh, when it concludes uh, motion practice and summary judgment, uh, the note of issue and trial, the note of issue is when discovery ultimately ends up concluding and uh, they certify the readiness of the case for trial. And we looked at uh, appeals in the event of an unfavorable judgment and settlement and discontinuance. Basics of civil litigation in New Jersey. Uh, largely mirrored what we talked about in New York, uh, statute of limitations most pertinent to us is generally the two years for personal injury cases. Uh, we looked at the New Jersey dockets and e-filing and the judiciary account charge system, AKA the JAX account. Uh, Title 59 claims, those are suits against public entities. Uh, the pleadings that are involved, uh, the summons complaint and the answer. Uh, track assignments and discovery. Track assignments are something that's uh, pretty unique to New Jersey and it's just the case has a set amount of discovery days depending on the track it gets put on. Um, <clears throat> uniform personal injury interrogatories. Again, something that's pretty unique, deemed automatically served with the complaint and the answer. Uh, and other devices, uh, motion practice, uh, particularly with regard to summary judgment, uh, mandatory personal injury arbitration, that's set as discovery concludes and trial, and appeals and settlement and dismissal. And New York's serious injury threshold. Uh, we talked about the source of this and uh, where first party benefits are provided for under uh, Article 51 of the insurance law. Who's eligible for these first party benefits? What has to happen for you to be covered? Uh, priority of payment, who's on the hook for paying them? Uh, how you can sue for a motor vehicle accident, uh, insurance law 5104, uh, you cannot sue for basic economic loss. Section 291A and 2A, that's where the 50K carve out to our lien comes from. Uh, we went into the nine categories of serious injury uh, and the effect of the of uh, the serious injury threshold on litigation, how it can form the basis of a motion for summary judgment, how you can leverage it into a favorable settlement, et cetera. Pre-answer motion practice in New York. This is basically the 3211 motion to dismiss. Uh, what's the trigger for a response? When do you have to file this? Um, what are the various grounds under 3211? Uh, lack of summary, uh, lack of uh, personal jurisdiction, lack of subject matter jurisdiction, uh, failure to state a claim, et cetera. Um, advantages and disadvantages of the motion to dismiss versus raising affirmative defenses. Remember, if you raise your affirmative defenses, you preserve those potential arguments for dismissal for summary judgment after you've had some time to do some discovery and flesh them out a bit more. Your chances of prevailing after comprehensive discovery are way better than before uh, any issues of fact have actually been resolved. Um, what is the effect of filing a 3211 motion, the stay on litigation? Uh, and we dove into uh, when it's proper to file a 3211 motion versus just go after summary judgment after discovery. Similar agenda for the pre-answer motion practice in New Jersey. When a response was required, uh, New Jersey Court Rule 4, 6-2, which specifically delineates the various grounds for dismissal. Uh, we looked at the effect of a dismissal motion versus affirmative defenses, again, preserving your right to make that argument later. Uh, waiver of certain defenses due to the interaction with other parts of Rule 4, 6. So which ones do you have to raise or you lose them? Uh, in your first response of pleading, uh, when summary judgment might be the better route, uh, and an interesting overlap with workers' ec uh, workers' comp exclusivity, 
Another topic we're going to dive deeper into in 2021, uh, and the entire controversy doctrine in New York, resolving uh, all of the claims arising from the same transaction or occurrence in a single action. Discovery devices in New Jersey. <clears throat> so uh, again, we dove a little deeper into the track assignments. Rule 4, colon 10 uh, lays out the pretrial discovery. We have those beautiful uniform personal injury interrogatories deemed automatically served. There's additional questions for motor vehicle accidents, for med mal cases, product liability cases. You get 10 additional questions on your own uh, before they start to become objectionable. One of my personal favorites for discovery devices in both New York and New Jersey. In New York, it's a notice to admit, but in New Jersey, the request for admissions, um, the notice to produce documents, that's your standard document demand, uh, physical and mental examinations under rule four colon 19, uh, depositions upon oral examination and written questions, that's your standard uh, pretrial deposition, uh, subpoenas and the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act. Uh, a beautiful thing that has obviated the need for letters rogatory and certification from the court to serve out-of-state subpoenas. Uh, states that participate in it, it's really streamlined the process for out-of-state discovery. Uh, we looked at uh, motions to compel discovery or failure to make discovery. Uh, and we looked at the use of civil discovery in defense of our workers' comp claims. So we're looking for consistency of the responses across both cases coordination with other defense counsel if it's not us, uh, things of that nature. <clears throat> and we also looked at disclosure tools in New York. Uh, and this was our final topic just from last month. Uh, we looked at when discovery begins and ends, the continuing disclosure requirements of CPLR 3101. Uh, we looked at the various disclosure methods under CPLR 3102, uh, the bill of particulars, something pretty unique to New York, um, depositions upon oral examination and written questions. Written questions is less common. Uh, New York has also adopted the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act. So again, facilitates out-of-state discovery, particularly in the form of subpoenas. Uh, the concept of combined demands under CPLR 3120, that's your standard old document demand. Uh, demand for answers to interrogatories. Uh, you can't serve a bill of particulars and also do those in personal injury actions. Uh, demand for total damages, this comes from not being able to set forth an actual monetary demand in your complaint. The defendant can then say, well, tell me what your damages are. Uh, notice to admit. And uh, finally, CPLR 3101 and the impact on matters before the workers' comp board. Uh, so this we talked about how uh, the continuing disclosure requirements, the board is free to adopt or reject those as it sees fit. <clears throat> and this is particularly relevant with regard to uh, fraud litigation and covert surveillance, where it's required disclosure under 3101I, but we get to withhold it until the claimant testifies in workers' comp cases. So just to briefly touch on what's coming up in 2021, uh, this agenda was uh, cobbled together uh, mostly from the most common questions that we receive uh, at Lois Law Firm. And so we're gonna be taking a deeper look at complex issues in subrogation uh, and other civil aspects pertaining to workers' comp. Uh, you may ask where there's a civil aspect pertaining to, new, uh, to workers' comp. Well, uh, that's loss transfer or uh, subrogation issues. We're gonna look at ride sharing and transportation network companies, Uber, uh, things of that nature and how that applies with loss transfer. 
health insurance matching program defense. Uh, this is a big one and it's not very often touched on. Uh, we're gonna look at both subrogation and offset rights under section 29 and section 40. Remember you have rights uh, for reimbursement and also rights going forward. Uh, third party settlements in New York, I mentioned this earlier, the concept of consent uh, and non-pro-tunk motions, uh, preparing a good consent letter really hammering home your future rights. We're also gonna look at workers' comp exclusivity and employer coverage liability issues. Uh, again, I'm talking about like the Part B employer's liability coverage uh, and how that overlaps with workers' comp uh, and when the employer might get implied in a civil case and what coverage is triggered in that scenario. Uh, this is a pretty common question that arises. Multi-jurisdictional issues and subrogation. Accident happens in Connecticut, New York workers' comp claim or New York third-party action. Uh, how does this sort out? When does section 29 kick in? When is it section 40? When is it section 31-293? Um, <clears throat> we're gonna look at uh, Kelly, Burns, and Bissell rights in New York. Uh, this is all about our future offset. Uh, this is about the cost of litigation rate, how you can preserve your right to not pay any portion of that going forward, the claimant's obligation to pay for medicals out of pocket, uh, we're going to look at leveraging a third-party action in a workers' comp claim. This is the so-called global settlement, one of our favorite ways to uh, limit exposure. Uh, and we're going to look at properly investigating and preserving subrogation opportunities. Uh, spoiler alert, it's never too early to start looking for an opportunity to maybe offset some of your risk. And finally, suits against public entities in New York and New Jersey. Title 59 claims in New Jersey. Uh, dealing with Municipal Law 50E and the Court of Claims Act. Uh, pretty fascinating topic as it pertains to subrogation. Uh, so I do want to thank everybody that tuned in over the course of the year, uh, wishing everyone a happy and safe holidays, and uh, I hope you'll tune in for some of the exciting topics coming up next year. So let's check if we have any questions. And I think we're good on questions. So Thank you once again for joining. And uh, next week, December 21st, we have the Section 29 Liens and Subrogation webinar in New York. So hopefully you'll join us for that. <clears throat> and have a good day, everyone.